In this episode of 2000 Bucks, Bill Allett, a serial entrepreneur and lecturer at MIT's Sloan School of Business, gives us the complete step-by-step guide to starting a startup. Well, hello, hello, my ambitious friends, and welcome to 2000 Books, where we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs. Books in the field of startups, marketing, sales, productivity, management, leadership, strategy, self-help, and much more. And I'm your host, Manny Vile. Today, we have Bill Allard, a serial entrepreneur who has raised over $100 million for his ventures and has led one of his companies into the Inc. 500 list of fastest growing companies. Bill teaches entrepreneurship at MIT Sloan School of Business, and today we're talking about his outstanding book, Disciplined Entrepreneurship. Bill, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Manny. Thank you. And uh, your book is a great one. I came across this a few years ago. Tell our listeners, why should they read this book, listen to this book? Well, I think it's very helpful to read the book because um, entrepreneurship can be taught. The more times you do it, the better you get at it, as the data shows. And what this book is, the wisdom, not just of my journey as an entrepreneur, but literally hundreds of other entrepreneurs. And we put it in a systematic you know, way that you know where to start and you know where, where to end. Yeah, it's an absolute gem. There's like 24 steps in the whole process. And we'll get into the high level details of some of these as we go in. Um, tell our listeners, what is your personal journey and what led you to writing the book? <laughs> well... I should say, I say at the beginning, um, I'm an accidental academic. I'm, I'm an entrepreneur by design. <laughs> um, I, I was a basketball player growing up and I loved basketball. And then I worked, um, and I was an engineer in college. And then I worked at, um, uh, at IBM for 11 years in the 1980s and became, uh, you know, was on the personal computer and saw that explode and saw this thing called entrepreneurship. And then when I came back here at MIT, I, I, I said, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. And I left IBM, which was shocked at the time, and I became an entrepreneur. And um, my personal story is one of progression, because the first company I started wasn't successful. And the second one was pretty successful. The third one was very successful. And um, I, what I, I learned in that process is you can learn entrepreneurship. It's something that can be taught. We're just not doing a very good job of teaching it. Mm. And and to stay on this topic a little bit, is it is it somewhat true that it's like the young people who can learn it better early on rather than someone who's starting a business uh, at an age, you know, let's say when they're 40 and then they're trying to do it, where there is an advantage to doing it early? Well, I wrote, once wrote this article called the, the seven you know dangerous myths of entrepreneurship. And one of them is you have to be young to be an entrepreneur. There's kind of I joke about the damage that Mark Zuckerberg has done to people, that you have to be young to be an entrepreneur. You have to do it your first time and get it right. The, the, the data is just refutes that. Um, as I said before, your first time is you're most likely to fail and you get better over time. It's usually the third time. And entrepreneurs are not usually young. They're usually, you know, as a Kaufman Foundation show, they're usually in their mid-30s to be successful. And uh, a lot of what I learned at IBM was transferable, which helped me to be successful as an entrepreneur. And I, so I think it's, it, you know, I don't, I don't discourage young people to be entrepreneurs, but it's a challenge to acquire all the skills you need. Got it. So, so let's jump into the book. Uh, let's, let's talk about, you know, maybe the 10,000 feet overview of the book, a meta bird's eye view of the book. So the, the book basically uh, was written for my, my class at MIT, which is, you know, a foundational class in entrepreneurship. 
no matter what industry you're in, whether you're a ready-to-go entrepreneur that has to start a company, whether you're a curious entrepreneur. And what we did is we pulled together what all the kind of best tools are out there for entrepreneurship, and we brought them into one toolbox. Uh, and then not only did we bring the toolbox together, we then had a, a roadmap to step you through that. And um, and so the stuff is is things that you as entrepreneurs will recognize a lot of it. But what you'll see is there's some things you don't recognize. And, and, and what you'll find, I think, very interesting. And for me, what was most insightful in it when I was pulling it all together was how everything fits together. So first of all, we went through and picked the tools. Things like design thinking, you know, um, step work that Stefan Tomke's done on how do you run rapid experiments, um, and brought that together. And it, and it starts out with who is your customer, and uh, a lot. There's a great TED talk by Simon Sinek. He says before you worry about the how and the what, worry about the why. And this is great advice, but you have to go back back even a step further to say the why for you is different than the why for me. We have to figure out who, and then once we know the who, when we understand them in depth through primary market research, then we can figure out, you know, why they need some, some, a new product and then what that product is and how we build it. So it all starts off with the who. That's the first theme. The second theme is, second theme is what can you do for that customer? And, uh, and this is how you come up with your value proposition, how you come up with what's unique. And each step we go through and define this very carefully and uh, clearly, and then we give examples of it. And then the third theme is how does your customer acquire the product? And sometimes people want to jump over this, and it's not as much fun as the first two, because once we know who our customer is and once we know we can generate some value for them in a unique way, certainly they should buy it, but that's not the way the real world works. They have an acquisition process, and we need to understand who is their user, end user, who's the economic buyer, who's the champion, who influences each one of those people or functions, and they, they might be the same person. So uh, before we go into all these different parts, because I know we're going to go into detail again as we, got in, as we get into the interview, let's just, let's just do this. Let's get into the details of each of these and let's you know, talk a little bit to our audience about how this all works out. So identifying who our customer is, I mean, that's a, this, this is not just a one-step thing. There is a lot to it. There's segmenting the market. There's understanding what is the beachhead market and building a user profile and then persona. So uh, maybe walk us through these little things here. Yeah, and I think this is really important. Sometimes people jump right over into the product, but you're, you're correct. We systematically go through as what's your idea, what's your technology, um, what do you think the problem is? And then we, 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 the first thing is we do market segmentation where we look at who are the potential customers for it. And that sounds like an easy thing, but it's a brainstorming session that's extremely productive to do as a team. And entrepreneurship is a team sport. It's not an individual sport. So we have to think about, you know, what are the potential customers? And immediately we're turning the mindset around that, you know, you're going to build this company from the customer back, not pushing something out on them. So that's market segmentation. We look at the many different markets. The second step, we, we look and we say, what is the one market that we're going to focus on? And that's called a beachhead market. Where are we going to land on the beaches? And then we'll move on to other things. But what's the first kind of land piece of land that we're going to win. And um, and once we know the beachhead market, we may have to iterate on that a few times to get it correct. 
but then we know who the user is and we'll build you know a profile of that user and figure out how many of those users are from a tops down and a bottoms up and then once we know how many users there are approximately then we can figure out how big the total addressable market is and that's step four and once we've done that we probably iterate a few times to make sure the market's not too big or not too small but then we have to get a what's called a persona and that's an actual real customer because entrepreneurship success is based on specificity not generalities so we get a real customer that represents our target customer group and then that's that's you know the first major theme here first major set of steps in that case to who is our customer with great specificity now what's the difference between the end user profile and the persona the, the the profile is a general view of here's the demographics they could be between 24 and, and 30 they make approximately this much money they live in new england you know they have this type of job a persona is an actual real person it's it's very specific because you know when you study behavioral economics you see that people respond to actual real stories actual real people rather than just generalities and that's why a persona is an actual real person so that you put it up on the wall you look at it and say is what what would what would manny do in this situation what how would we message this to him what he want this product at what price point would he buy it at what price point wouldn't he buy it got it uh, so so this is this is like really important to understand who our customer is like getting really precise and not be general about the whole thing because exactly. Yeah. And now let's let's get get into the next step which is part 2 I guess or theme 2 which is what we can do for the customer, what value we can create for them, why why we can do that, right? So so let's walk through those steps in that um, theme. Sure. Once we once we know who the customer is and we build a persona, now we're very specific. And now we say, all right, um, how would the customer use the product? How would they even know they have a problem or there's an opportunity? And so what we do is what's called a full life cycle use case, where we say, how do they know they have a problem? How do they you know, um, see an opportunity? And then how do they realize their options available? How do they analyze those options? And then how do they acquire those options, install those options, use them, get value, pay for it, tell other people about it, and buy more product? Um, and you say, wow, that's pretty complicated. And it is. But this full life cycle use case is essential to start to understand as soon as possible because we'll understand, you know, the entire experience of the customer. Not only do we know who they are, but we understand the entire experience. And now we can start focusing on what are the key aspects. It won't be right right off the bat. This is a first draft. So we draft up our step number six as our full life cycle use case. And then in number seven, we build a brochure. We build a high-level product specification of our product. And people say, well, shouldn't you build it? And the answer is no, because we need to be in inquiry mode here, not advocacy mode. And as soon as you build something, you start moving into advocacy mode for that which you've built. It's a behavioral economist, economist uh, you know, yeah. phenomenon known as the IKEA effect. And then, uh, and so that's step seven. So you build a brochure that you, you're, you're willing and anxious to change as you interact with customers. You said and it's the IKEA effect? IKEA effect. Huh. If we go to IKEA, the store, and we get a bunch of parts and we build 
a chair or a desk, we become irrationally attached to that chair or that desk <laughs> okay. because we built it. Makes sense. Yep. It's no longer a desk. There's emotion associated with it. And we go from inquiry to advocacy is what you say. Exactly. Exactly. And we need to stay in inquiry mode here because we don't know what the answer is. And the worst thing you can do is start building a product too soon because it's very expensive to start building products. And then you don't really understand what the customer needs. You've got to stay in inquiry mode. So after we, so the brochure is a much more flexible way to, to interact with customers on it. And, it, and in the brochure, you're focusing on what are the benefits. And we need to focus on what's the primary benefit. And this is what we call the quantifying the value proposition. This is where what's the single thing that keeps them awake at night, that they lose sleep over, that they fear more than anything else in the world. And we lay that out. And then we say, what's the as-is state with time to market or cost or reliability? What's the as-is state? And then we compare that to the possible state with our product. And the difference between those two is the quantified value proposition. We're taking time to market from 16 weeks to eight weeks. That's quantifiable, and that's very, very exciting to people who develop toys. So that's an example. To someone in a, in a data center, they want the reliability to be much higher. And so we have to say, our solution will improve your reliability. But it goes back to the persona. There's this link back to previous steps, and that's how we quantify the value proposition. Now, once we do that, then we have to check with not just a persona who we've been working very closely with, but we get 10 other real customers and we work the, the life cycle use case, the high level specification, the quantified value proposition. And after 10 of them, we, we, we probably are very comfortable that A, we've, we've got a good marketplace for this and B, that our product and product specifications and knowledge about their full life cycle use case and value proposition are good. And that's really de-risked this situation dramatically. Um, and now after that, we have to make sure that in steps 10 and 11, that what we do is unique. So what's our secret sauce and why does a customer really care about it? And that's identifying your core and your competitive positioning. Mm -hmm. So it's like what we've done here is actually put together in, in the second thing, we've really tried to understand from the customer's point of view what we can do for them and then put it in a, in a meaningful way that they can now understand what we're actually doing for them. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's a very, it's, you know, I'm an engineer and I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm very uh, you have to define what it is. And you have to be specific. So this is kind of an engineering approach to this. Even though it's not an algorithm, there's lots of iterations. Yeah, we're so both engineers here, so. <laughs> yeah, we love engineers. Right. <laughs> yeah. So the next, the next theme is what, what, what your, how does your customer acquire the product? And there's been a lot of work done in this area seen over the years, and it's very helpful. It's very practical. It's not just academic work. It's you have to, who, who, is, the, who is the economic buyer is what people talk about, who's paying for it. But the economic buyer won't buy it unless the user uses it. So we have to focus on the user first, because if the user uses it, then there's some value created, then the economic buyer will pay for it. And then, but we still need a champion to help drive this through the process. So we have to identify who has each one of those functions. And, and they all might reside in one person, and some often a consumer product. But in a business product, they're, they're often separated with, through different people. So now we're going to understand who's the, the, the jury of people, the decision-making unit. 
And then who's going to make the decision and who influences each of them? And then step 13 is how do they make that decision? That's the uh, decision-making process. So this is very, very important because the best product doesn't always win. It's the product that the customers acquire. The best product doesn't always win. It's the product that the customers unbundle this for us. What do you mean? So time and time again, you know, the classic case that you see is, you know, which was better, beta or VHS? Um, Beta was clearly the superior product, uh, but it was VHS that won in the marketplace. And at the end of the day, if you had a, if you, if you argued that the beta was better, you were the loser (laughs) because it won. And time and time again, you know, it's not the, the product that's the best technically that wins. It's the products that the customer use and that they generate value. That's what matters. So it's like a tree falling in the, in the forest. Does anybody hear it? Well, not unless someone's nearby, right? And if a product's great, it's not great unless somebody uses it. So as entrepreneurs, I mean, what's the distinction for us? Like, what's the, le- what's the, what's the lesson for us in that, in that frame of reference? Well, that it's a product that customers use rather than creating a product that's awesome? Yeah, well, the thing is you got to respect the, the sales process. You got to respect your salespeople that your product isn't good unless somebody uses it. So as entrepreneurs, we understand very much so that sales is part of our job. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so... We can just say, well, we can hire magical salespeople or we can understand the process. And, and what I would say is that we should understand the process. And there's some, you know, there's, there's principles here that are helpful, like understanding who's the end user, who's the economic buyer, who's the champion and building personas of those and getting to understand, you know, what motivates them and targeting our product to meet their needs. And, um, and that way, we're much more successful. Sales becomes much easier if we understand the dynamics of the decision-making unit and the decision-making process. So let me ask uh, the question about VHS and Betamax. Why did VHS win? Uh, because they, they, they got out there. They got more market share. They were much better at selling it. Um, and they achieved, achieved the industry standard. They became the dominant design. So it wasn't superior product. It's just better selling. It's, look at time and time again. Is, is Microsoft have the best products? No. But what they do is they get out there and they get people to use them and they start locking people in and then they, they don't switch off them. So, um, so sales is incredibly important if you're an entrepreneur. And understanding how you build a product that can be sold efficiently and effectively with the least amount of friction um, starts when you design that product from the beginning. And that's what we're doing here. It's, that makes it's, sense. It's hard to fix a product that wasn't well designed for a customer and wasn't put in the right kind of business model and, and pricing and messaging. It's hard to fix that later. Yeah. The product doesn't just sit uh, like this one entity in, um, as the only thing that sells. It's the whole business. I mean, everything is related. So we can't just assume that we have a great product and hence everything will work itself out. That's exactly right. And, it, and, and, and by the way, the product, you know, whether, you know, in this, you know, the next stage is after we understand the decision-making or decision-making process, now we have to get into the unit economics. And in that stage, that theme, uh, which is the fourth theme, we call how do you make money off your product? Well, the first thing we do is design a, a business model. 
And by a business model, I'm very specifically, and this term's thrown around a lot, I mean, how do you extract rent for the value that you create? How do you get paid? What's your monetization strategy? That's the business model here. So if I understand my decision-making unit can't pay a lot of money up front, but they can pay per procedure, which is often the case in the medical area, then the business model that makes best sense is the consumable business model. And that fits to that customer very, very well. And lo and behold, if your product is better and the other customer, but your business model is a one-time charge, it won't sell to the medical because the medical people are used to paying per procedure. So in, in step 15, designing a business model, you could have a consumables like we just talked about, a one-time charge. You could have an advertising model, an affiliate model where you get paid a commission. You could have a freemium to premium model. Um, you could have a you know cell phone type of model where you get so many and then you pay pay more. You could have a, a model where you know kind of you make your money off penalty charges when people uh, overuse a product. Uh, so much like with credit cards, and and each one of those is that that decision as to what business model you take depends on your customer and specifically your decision making your decision making process because you're always trying to map to what makes it easiest for them, what reduces the friction. And it's something you figure out as you go, as in, as you iterate with the customer back and forth. For example, Google, I mean, it's Google search, it's a technology, but more importantly, until it was a business model, it was just another technology. Yeah, that's right. People say, well, Google, it must, it's the algorithm. No, it isn't the algorithm. As much as people want to, you know, some people like to say that, I can tell you there are many better algorithms out there than Google. Yeah, and Google and Bing are almost identical in terms of search results, but people yeah. don't go to Bing anymore. And we can put ones in the, in, the, in the laboratory and they can be better. But at the end of the day, that, that doesn't matter because what made Google differentiated Google from everybody else was AdWords. It was a new business model, whereas opposed to putting banner ups like banner ads up like Google and, and Alta Vista and everybody else was doing, they used AdWords where they you know, auctioned off a word. And, uh, and, and that's, you know, that was the breakthrough with Google. Google isn't a search engine company. Google is the most dominant advertising company the world has ever seen. And the, the reason why is because they came up with this AdWords business model before anybody else. And they coupled it together with the other things that we wanted as, as consumers. So th this business model decision has made the companies of Netflix, of Salesforce.com, uh, as you just mentioned, Google, um, even Apple, you know, the decision to charge 99 cents per song um, was a brilliant decision and really launched iTunes to a whole nother level of anybody else. So this step 15, designing the business model, incredibly important. People don't spend enough time on it. And, and to do the right thing there, you have to understand what we just talked about, decision-making unit, decision-making process. But then step 16 is uh, people spend too much time on is how do you price it? And uh, figure out the business model and then estimate the pricing. And you'll figure that out as you go through and, and iterate with customers. But if I know what my business model is, I, I, I can come up with a good uh, you know, assumption on that. And I can get a range on what the price will be. And I'll, I'll work that out more as we go through. I can estimate what my, you know, step 17 is my LTV, my lifetime value. And, and that's very important to understand. Is it not exactly to any decimal place, but is it? $10? Is it $100? Is it $1,000? Is 
Is it $10,000? Because, you know, are those numbers inherently bad or good? No, that, you know, you can have a low LTV, generally a a bigger number is better, but Google has has a less than $100 LTV. But once I know it, I know how I need to set up my sales channel. And that's what 18 is, map your sales process. And then if it's if it's $100, then I need to be use automated technique techniques to do it. If my lifetime value is $20 million, then I use direct salespeople. So because once I know my sales channel, now I start to do the calculation in step 19 of what my cost of customer acquisition is. And then I compare those two to each other. And now I have a very meaningful understanding of what the unit economics are for my product and what drives it. And now I can say, aha, this isn't working. Can I fix it? And, and often this is exactly what happens. And then you can fix it by decreasing your cost of customer acquisition. But it's better to know that up front. And that will help you design your product. If, you're not, if, you're, if you need to keep the cost of customer acquisition very, very low in something like Google or LinkedIn, it affects how you design your product. Um, because that's the next theme we're going to go into. So we just finished the who's your customer? What can you do for your customer? How does your customer acquire your product? How do you make money off your product? Now we're into the, the, the fifth one. How do you design and build your product? So now we're starting to flip over to advocacy because we know we, who the customer is. We know we can generate value for them uniquely. We know we can make money off this or, or we, we, we have a good suspicion. So let's start building it in a very efficient and effective way. And a lot of this is, you know, the lean startup. You know, it's, it's identify your key assumptions, test your key assumptions, you know, define and, and build your minimum viable business product. And then, you know, you have to then test that with, you know, metrics, prove that the dogs will eat the dog food. And this is steps 20 to 23. A lot of work done by Stefan Tomke at MIT and Harvard. And um, that is... Uh, that's what we incorporate here in a very efficient, effective way for entrepreneurs. Right. And right. I mean, the idea of showing that dogs will eat the dog food, you have a pretty funny story about that. Do you want to tell us about it? <laughs> yeah. I, it resonates with my students here because uh, the dogs like the dog food. So we have a really strong chemical engineering group here. And so they come up with things sometimes. And, you know, and this, this is I made this story up, but they thought it was real. Um, said, yeah, yeah. And chemical engineering, they came up with this new dog food and it was a new chemical compound. And the dogs, you know, if they ate this food, they would sleep better at night. And by the way, they would shed less hair and their teeth would be brighter and, you know, and they would be friendlier and it it, it would taste better by the, you know, from what they, you know, the studies show. Um, And so they built a big factory for the for the dog food. And then they put the, the food in front of the dogs, and the dogs wouldn't eat it. And they, you know, they said, wait a second, this isn't right. The dogs should eat it. Well, it didn't matter. The dogs weren't going to eat it. <laughs> and uh, that's why we always say, even if it logically makes sense that the, you know, the, the dog should eat the dog food, you have to check that they will and prove that they will. And I've seen this many times you know, in my career, you know, electronic medical records at IBM. You know, we spent billions of dollars on it. And... Uh, it made all the sense in the world. And, and, you know, we had some leading edge doctors who said it's a good thing. But as soon as you put it out there to, in, in mass, you realize that doctors didn't want to use computers. Um, that's not what they were trained to do. They were trained to talk to patients and do, 
you know, do medical things. In fact, they resisted it. Mm. So it's very important to set metrics in there and not delude yourself that it's working. And just to complete the 24 steps, the last thing is, which goes back to step 14, is after you've done your beachhead market, where are you going to go next? And then how big are those markets? And then in step 24, if you make a product plan that allows you to move from your beachhead market to follow-on markets that will take your business from being, you know, a successful business to a, a very, very successful business. Got it. This is when you start scaling. Yes. How do you scale your business? And that is that is the sixth theme. And it's, you know, all this is, uh, you, you know, entrepreneurship isn't an algorithm, Manny. It is a, it, it's a series of iterations and tests that you have to do. But this framework dramatically increases your odds of success. Um, but it doesn't assure them. There's, there's still important things like team and timing. But, you know, people say, well, how'd you know what book to write? And I said, it's easy because I am the persona. 20 years ago when I started being an entrepreneur and I wanted to make a really successful company, what do I wish I knew? Um, and that's what this book is all about. Great. Okay. Before we go further, Bill, let me tell our listeners how to get hold of a free copy of this audiobook. All you need to do is just text the word summary, S-U-M-M-A-R-Y, to the number 44222, and we will reply back with all the details on how to get the audiobook for free. Remember, once the 100 copies are gone, they're gone. Okay, so Bill, we've gone through the 24 steps of disciplined entrepreneurship here, but let's step back and let's, you know, let me ask you, given all your experience, given being an entrepreneur and teaching it, if you could give an early stage entrepreneur one piece of advice, one important piece of wisdom, what would it be? It's you have to have the spirit of a pirate. You have to be willing to be different you know, come up with ideas that are, that are different and test them out. But, but that's great. But then you, you have to also simultaneously have the, the execution skills of a Navy SEAL. You have to be able to, once you know what, you know, have a process whereby you figure out what the customer wants, then you just have to, to execute it. Uh, this, I, th- th- this perception that the idea is the key thing in a, an entrepreneurial venture is just wrong. It's the most overrated thing. The original idea is the most overrated thing in entrepreneurship. It is so much more about figuring out who the customer is and then having a process, a discipline in which to go through that to figure out what can we do for our customers. And so it's that discipline that I would leave you with, Manny, that's that's so important when you see successful entrepreneurs. Right. And I think that's why the name of the book, Disciplined Entrepreneurship. <laughs> and I'll tell you, the publisher did not like that name at all. And um, that's interesting. They said, oh, they said, you'll you'll be able to sell so many more. Discipline is a bad name for a book. It makes people feel like it's hard work. Said, <laughs> well, then that's a good title because it is hard work. <laughs> yeah, um, you're already doing the customer segmentation right there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I, and that's the point of the book is is to help entrepreneurs to understand realistically what entrepreneurship is. Because when you get it right, it's the, it's the most wonderful thing in the world. Um, but it's not easy. Anyone who tells you entrepreneurship is easy, that there's three things that you need to know to be an entrepreneur, that's hogwash. Mm-hmm. Um, it, is, it is a tough, very rewarding thing. And there's no, you know, I've learned as I got older in life, you know, there's no reward for an easy job. Um, good things are hard. 
and we we embraced hard here. This is great. And now I want to talk to you about action items. But before we do that, let me talk to our listeners about Mixergy. So have you ever wanted to sit down with one of the founders of companies like Dropbox, Wikipedia, Udemy, Airbnb, Groupon, and ask them these real detailed stories of how they got from zero to the first sale to $100 to $1,000, $10,000, a million dollars, $10 million, $100 million, and even a billion dollars in sales. Well, that's what my friend Andrew Warner is doing at Mixergy, and I absolutely love the level of details he gets out of the founders. It is unprecedented. So, for example, when Andrew was interviewing the co-founder of Udemy, Gagan Biani, Andrew really drilled into the details of how Udemy grew from nothing. I mean, why did they fail for a whole summer to get any customers? How did they find a partnership? How did they make their first major sale using a live event? And how did they get real traction? So, Andrew has done 1,000 such interviews with some of the biggest names in the startup world today, and they are all at Mixergy.com. Now, Mixergy's annual membership is $399, but for this launch of 2,000 Books podcast, Andrew has been very kind to give away three annual Mixergy memberships. And you can win one of those three annual Mixergy memberships worth $399 each. Just text the word SUMMARY to 44222 and you will have all the details as to how to enter the launch contest. Okay, so back to action items. Let's give our listeners three specific action items, Bill, so that they can go and apply them today. Well, the first thing is read the book. (laughs) (laughs) It's a complicated system. But that being said, um, within it, I'd say it's really about focus. It's about getting a beachhead market. It's about building the persona. It's about focus, focus, focus. And Steve Jobs said, I'm as proud of the things we didn't do as the things we did do. And there's always an infinite amount of things you can do. And you have to choose what you're going to do. And it's easy to choose, but you have to deselect those things you don't want to do. And that's discipline. I think the second thing is that I would really focus on is, you know, um, what specifically is your value proposition? And is that value proposition related to the thing that that your, your customer absolutely cares the most about, you know, what that keeps them awake at night. So making sure that that alignment between your value proposition and theirs is, is dead on. And, and the, the last, the last thing I would say, I would say is that, um, and this is not in the book is that the hardest time often is, is figuring out how do you get the, those customers moving? Your, your biggest competitor is not, you know, some other company. The biggest competitor is the do-nothing option. In, 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 in science, we call it, you know, it's, it's Newton's first law of motion. Standing bodies remain at rest. Um, they, they need a force, external force, to push them. And so in this, you, you need to really focus on that decision-making of who's the champion. And even within that, that sales process, you have to figure out where the windows of opportunity that you can move your customer along. When are they going to, you know, you have to sell at the right time. You have to understand for Christmas gifts, you're not going to sell them in February and, 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 you know, July. You need to sell them in November. Um, Where are the windows of opportunity with your target customer that you've defined? And how are you going to take advantage of that? When when, when, When you finally do get those customers, how are you going to successfully you know, move them across the line to action and to get your product. So uh, this whole concept of windows of opportunities and triggers, which isn't in the book, 
but is tied very closely to decision-making unit. I found it's been very uh, helpful to get companies, um, get the ball moving in companies to create new successful products. Got it. Well, this has been great, Bill. So if our listeners want to get hold of you, learn from you, get the book, where should they find you? Where should they find everything else? Yeah, so the first thing that that doesn't cost anything is uh, we have a class called Entrepreneurship 101 and 102. um, And then 103 is coming soon and hopefully 104 thereafter. We will be coming thereafter. And those are on edX platform. And they're great, great classes. You you know, you, you can't, we can't have all of you to MIT, but you can get, you know, some of this training right there in a, in, a, in a free environment. Not a very good business model, but MIT is not going public anytime soon. <laughs> and um, and then the other thing is, you know, buy the book and, and, and put it to use. I, the book is very easy to read, um, and there are lots of cases and examples. So just go on to Amazon. It's less than 20 bucks, and, and give it a go. You, you can't learn by sitting on the sidelines. If you want to be, you know, entrepreneurship is a participation uh, sport. <laughs> You've got to get on the field, you know, you got to get your nose knocked around and, you know, got to fall down, scrape your knees and get dirty. But that's how you learn. It's a full contact bloody sports, but it's fun. Yeah, <laughs> best, the best. It's the best. Well, this has been an absolute joy, Bill. Thank you very much for taking the time today. Thank you, Manny. And remember that in order to get today's audiobook for free or to win one year of Mixergy membership worth $399 for free, just text the word SUMMARY to 44222. All right, I'll see you again on Wednesday. Sayonara.